The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. I'm going to continue with the reading. We are coming into the final chapters of the so-called Yoga of the Disciple, which is a collection of principles and precepts established by the Tibetan gurus along the centuries through their direct experience, which represent advice, practical advice, given to the disciples in yoga, to the practitioners of yoga, and even to the very advanced practitioners of yoga about how to administer different aspects of the spiritual life and of the spiritual practice. And we are moving to the chapter number 21. I forgot, but there, there will be like 25 or 26, all of them. So, as I said, we are getting close to the end of this circuit. The chapter number 21 is called the 10 grievous mistakes because it presents 10 things which the Tibetan gurus consider that they are mistakes, not only mistakes, 10 grievous mistakes, like 10 real bad mistakes, severe, grave. Because of this, the language is again a bit sharp. Not only that the Tibetan yogis were a kind of people that were very strong on Manipura and Ajna Chakra, and this made them very sharp and capable of a terrible sarcasm sometimes, and a very pungent sense of humor, although refined, spiritual, but very clear. In the same way, when the title of the chapter is 10 Grievous Mistakes, you expect that there is some fire addressed in the direction of those. And the first of what the Tibetan gurus considered 10 grievous mistakes for people wanting to practice yoga and Tibetan spirituality in general was for a yogin to follow a hypocritical charlatan instead of a guru who sincerely practices the doctrine is a grievous mistake. We would consider, we would be tempted to consider the person who follows a charlatan a victim, like poor guy or poor woman. They followed, unfortunately, alas, they follow the charlatan. And what to do? You follow the charlatan. It's not your fault. It's the fault of the charlatan. You always would point fingers to find somebody else guilty for your things. But the Tibetan gurus don't look at it like this. They say, if you follow a charlatan, that's a grievous mistake, your mistake. It's not the fault of the charlatan. Charlatans have existed ever since forever. Charlatans today in the New Age environment, it rains with charlatans. In the end of Kali Yuga, 
we have inflation of charlatans. You find one guru at a thousand charlatans in the so-called spiritual world. There, but funnily enough, even in Tibet, like in Tibet, what did you get by really practicing spirituality? Like, who can imagine a Tibetan Lama, a pseudo-Lama, a pseudo-yogi, a pseudo-spiritualist in Tibet? A charlatan. What would they get from, what do you get from being a charlatan in Tibet? when first of all there were yogis like Milarepa and Tsongkhapa all around, when there were monasteries, hermitages, ashrams, where many men and women were practicing thoroughly, and yes, there will be here and there some charlatans, and you would expect those charlatans would be exposed, mocked, they would do lots of stupid things because the level of consciousness is obvious, like when you have somebody who is selfish, that selfish person cannot lie to everybody forever. I think it was Franklin or Lincoln, one of the American presidents, who said, you can lie a few people for all your life, you can lie a lot of people for a short time, but you cannot lie everybody for all your life. It simply doesn't work. There is not enough skillfulness in one's life to be able to go unexposed forever in front of everybody. It's like even the collective subconscious mind will expose you. There will be a tidal wave in the collective subconscious mind which at some point will reveal your flaw. It's not possible to push the envelope further than a certain degree because then it breaks. Then the, the fabric simply breaks and you will be exposed. And therefore, what would be the chance of a charlatan in a place like Tibet? Tibet today has the fame of having been the most spiritual place on earth in the last 2,000 years. We don't know what was 16,000 years in Hyperborea or some place like that. But as far as we know, the recent history... Tibet was the top spiritual place. There were times in the history of Tibet where researchers evaluate that one-third to one-half of the whole Tibetan population was living in monasteries and ashrams and practicing spirituality. Like half of the population was doing agriculture and half of the population were parasites, economically speaking. They ate the food produced by the others, and they lived a life of prayer and meditation, and morality and ethics, and all that was involved in their spirituality. And in a place which is of such incredible, like you realize, it's the 100 monkey effect. When you get over a certain number of people doing spirituality, it starts producing a tidal wave. It starts producing chain reactions in the collective subconscious mind. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the father of the transcendental meditation, the so-called guru of the Beatles, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi said, if 2% of the world population would practice mantra meditation every day, we could avoid a violent apocalypse. 
we could avoid a violent crossing into Satya Yuga. Because he knew not even 2% of the population practices spirituality. Like how many do actually sit down and practice 30 minutes, 60 minutes of something every day? Not just reading it in a book in the subway or stuff like that. Like really sitting and practicing something. Krishna says it 3,000 years ago. He says, Oh Arjuna, out of a thousand people, one is willing to do something for their spiritual improvement. One person in a thousand means 0.1%. It's a minority smaller than most of the minorities in the society. It's an ultra-minority to be an active spiritual person, to be an actual spiritual practitioner, a person that gives up eating meat because of his love for God, a person that stands every day ten minutes on his head or on her head because of his or her love for God. There's one in a thousand of those. That's why Maharishi Mahesh Yogi says, if in a country or in a place we could get them to 2%, one person in 50, we would change the history of that country. Therefore, there are not many, and in Tibet there were one-third, maybe 50%. That's huge. You can't imagine the chain reaction. What did this do to the householders, to the people who are not in monasteries, but who were caught into this field produced by those who were. And therefore, the spiritual energy in Tibet, due to the fervor, due to the numbers, to the percentage, due to the cosmic energy at living 3,000, 4,000 meters high in the plateaus, in the Himalayas, all those factors, they were generating a formidable spiritual frenzy. Even the householders, so-called householders, were very religious people. People with great faith, with great adherence to yama and niyama, like to morality and ethics, Buddhist morality and ethics. But still, and in that environment, what will you gain by being a charlatan? Like, it's the first which proves that even the Tibetans gurus said there are plenty of charlatans. Sometimes it happens, even in Tibet. In the time of glory of Tibetan practices, there were charlatans. Why don't the charlatans put a rope around their neck and put some soap on it and then go for it? What do they, what do the charlatans want to do in a place like Tibet? where there are milarepas and tsongkhapas around, as I said, and where they can be exposed, and where the Tibetans are on Manipura and Ajna, and they would be sharp, and you know, what's a charlatan doing there? Sometimes the charlatans simply can't stop themselves from doing it. There are people whose mental perversion, mental sickness, their desire to invent things, to live in a phantasmagoric world, to be mythomaniacs, to start coming up with tall tales and tell crazy stories about how last month they have been to Shambhala and they have received a special message from there and all sorts of other bizarre things like this. 
which eventually will be exposed as being fallacious, which eventually there is no lie which lasts forever. As I said, you cannot lie to everybody forever. It, there is simply the power of the lie is not big enough to cover such a span. And therefore, remember that the fact that in spirituality there exists crookedness, it's since ever. Even Jesus, 2,000 years ago, in an environment like the Jewish environment where they were obsessed with holiness and with observing the laws of Moses scrupulously and all that, even Jesus says, there are so many wolves dressed in the skins of sheep and accuses repeatedly that there exist fake teachers, fake spiritualists, and therefore that there exists a huge degree of falseness. It's not only in Tibet. It's not only in Jesus' Palestine. It's all over. And actually it has become much, much worse. I remember having read while I was living in India in a brochure published in India, one of the old discourses of Osho Rajneesh, who in those days was called Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, and there was a discourse where he exposed the same fallaciousness. He said, there are coming people and saying all around, like he was holding this discourse in the early 1970s, maybe even the late 60s, but I think it was 1970, 71, somewhere there. And he says, I am exasperated. He was exasperated in 1970s. Today it's a hundred times worse. And funny is that even some alleged of his disciples are contributing to that. He says, I am exasperated of the fact that there run around so many fakos who go around saying that they are self-realized spiritual masters. He said, I want to call your attention on something. Swami Vivekananda, the great of India, wrote clearly, he said, give me a hundred spiritual realized disciples and I, sh I can change every existential condition on this planet, on the face of this earth. Like if a Buddha did so much, if a Jesus and twelve apostles did so much, being alone in a whole century, or in three centuries around them. But Vivekananda was right. He said, if we would have a hundred, and all a hundred would be synchronized, we could change the world. We could change everything in the world. The tragic thing is that in Kali Yuga, there are not a hundred enlightened persons at the same time on the face of the earth. And those that are, which are much fewer, they are usually not synchronizing their effort. There may be some enlightened Christian prayer master who has done 20 years of prayer of the heart and has direct concourse with God. And there can be some vipassana enlightened being in some monastery in Thailand or in Cambodia. And there can be two, one of them in Himalaya and one in south of India belonging to Hinduism. And those four belong to four different religions. They never heard about each other. They never talked with each other. 
even if you would make an act of magic and bring them together, you will never be able to get the Christian saint to say, yes, the Buddhist guy is all right, because he is not allowed by the theology of his own religion to do that. And if he wants to be able to be efficient in his religion, he has to play dumb. He has to play some stupid game where he basically addresses to the followers of his religion. He can't afford to aggravate them, in which you get a Sufi saint and a Christian and a Buddhist and this, coming and saying, we have all five of us reached nirvana, and we want to tell you something. All your religious delimitations are bullshit, and they are not true, and it's time for a one-world religion. Nobody has succeeded that for the last 3,000 years, and it's not going to happen tomorrow as well. Therefore, realize that it is Kali Yuga indeed. Spirituality is very scarce and very hampered and it's not very well represented and not very well supported. And that is why... Um, so, coming back to this Rajneesh commentary, Rajneesh said, it's completely untrue. He said, look around you. In India, some people say they are... Uh, you know, enlightened, and if you count them, there are probably at least a hundred people who say they have reached self-realization. He said, if there would be a hundred people in India that have reached self-realization, we wouldn't burn the women with gasoline. We wouldn't kill the female fetuses. We wouldn't live in the misery in which we live. We wouldn't be bankrupt morally and ethically. We would not become, I would say now because it didn't happen then, we would not become an atomic power manufacturing atom bombs to defend ourselves from the big bad wolf. When Gandhi never said you should have atomic bombs, he said you should have non-violence, you should have non-cooperation. And no invader can invade a country of vertical people who don't cooperate ever, in any way. Therefore, Rajneesh indeed pointed at it. He said, it's not true, because the truth is seen according to the criterion of Jesus. Any tree shall be known by its fruits. If we have a hundred enlightened beings, there should be the fruits of a hundred enlightened beings. Because man sanctifies the place. Hundred enlightened beings in one country, that country will be different. What did Francis of Assisi do in Italy in the 12th century? He created an avalanche. After him there came Antony and a few other great saints and Francis and Antony and Clara, like five saints or so, they changed the history of Italy. Until today the Catholic Church celebrates Saint Francis and the Franciscans, even the Pope, which was anointed two days ago, took the name of Pope Francis, celebrating the personality of Francis of Assisi. No? It's like this is what five saints do to the history of a whole religion. Three saints, Basil the Great, Gregory the Theologian, and another one whose name I don't remember now, they are at the root of most of the Christian mysticism. Most of the Christian mysticism, including the, the Mass, the text of the Mass and everything, they are all of them coming from the 3rd and 4th century, and they are the, the work 
of three major saints, John Chrysostomus, Basil the Great, and Gregory the Theologian, who are celebrated together as the three core saints and so on. This is what three saints do to the history of a religion. Where are the 100 enlightened people? Ramana Maharishi appeared in the 1930s, 40s, and he made history with his Who Am I meditation. People today, a hundred years later, they still quote Ramana Maharishi. Remember, did you hear about Ramana Maharishi, the great sage from Arunachala? And then there come a lot of G's, you know, Baba G's and other Indian G's people who say, I am a self-enlightened master, disciple of Ramana Maharishi. But the funny thing is that when Paul Brunton was to the ashram of Ramana Maharishi and when Ramana Maharishi passed away in 1952 or 3, he never said there are about five who have reached self-realization, one of them can take my seat and continue my mission. No. When Ramana Maharishi died, it was a common knowledge that there was nobody who had reached the state of Samadhi and therefore the ashram was ruled by a council by a board of administrators. There was no guru. Ramana Maharishi never said, oh, there is there one in the back there who really got it right and that person can continue. This is what, where are? Are those people really self-enlightened teachers or are they boguses who can say a lot of things if they would be wouldn't they do what Ramakrishna did and change the history of the nation? All these anonymous Tom, Dick and Harrys that come and do things and so on, where is that enlightenment really? That is why the sad truth of the story is there exists charlatanism everywhere. As I told in another either lecture or satsang, don't think it's only into this. In the world of science, there are so many people who came with bogus scientific inventions and they tried to sell incredible fake scientific shit. In the world of medicine, how many people didn't come selling snake oil and all sorts of crap as I discovered the cure for all the cancers and for all the diseases and it just cost you $5.50 and that kind of stuff. These are domains where it is so much more easy to bring evidence and yet people are practicing charlatan things. Con men. The world is so full of con men and con women. Can you imagine that there is a guy and I said this, but it, I think it's the one of the tops of the charlatanism. There is a guy who actually sold to some idiotic Texas millionaire the Eiffel Tower, met some idiotic rich American in Paris, showed him the Eiffel Tower and said, the French government wants to dismantle it because it's rusty. Don't you want to buy it? I'm a clerk in the government and you can have it for $50,000. And the idiot bought it. Can you believe that the same guy sold it to another dummy? He sold it twice. He found two idiots to buy the Eiffel Tower. The human stupidity seems to be endless. That's what Albert Einstein said. There are two things which are infinite. The universe 
and the stupidity. And he said, I have serious doubts about the first one. Like, so because the stupidity is at the abysmal levels where it is, there will always exist charlatans and con men and con women. And in spirituality, there will be ten times more than anywhere else because there are things which you cannot demonstrate. If you have a honeyed tongue and you keep on saying things, people will shrug their shoulders and say, maybe they are right. There are so many psychological tricks which have been exposed by the sect dismantlers, by the psychologists, by people studying manipulation, PR, and other things in the 20th century. There is a reportage made by the Australian television. You find it on YouTube in some five different editions. Because in Australia there is a dude who looks like shit. And this dude claims no less and no more that he is Jesus. He starts his workshops where he has a number of people comparable to what we have tonight in the hall. And he does workshops. And the first thing which he does in the workshop, he takes a marker and he writes on the board. He goes to the board and he says, I am Jesus. And under it he says, deal with it. Like really impertinent, really with a lot of cheek, you know. Like there is no arguing. And you should see that 25 minutes reportage did by, done by Australian television because they show all the dirty psychological tricks which this man is using consciously or unconsciously. It's impossible to say if he did his homework and he learned how to manipulate people or if he simply has an extraordinary instinct in this field. There he is. And he found Mary Magdalene and he fucks her daily and he found Peter and Paul and John and, and there are a lot of wrecked, bizarre people around him who when they are taken interviews, I heard that you are supposed to be John. What have you got to say? And the man says, oh, every time when I think about Jesus, and he starts crying like a, like a psychological wreck, you know? Like, you can see that those people believe in that shit, and everybody who looks from outside says, boy, you know, I wouldn't want to be there, you know, and I wouldn't want my son to be there, and I wouldn't want my brother or my sister to be in there, you know, it's like, it's a nightmare, and yet it works. And it's not the only case, by far, by far, by far. That is why, realize that if the Tibetans were sharp against it, in such a tough spiritual environment as the Tibetan environment, where there was not much to gain by being a charlatan, like you could not buy yourself a Rolls Royce and a condo just because you are a charlatan in Tibet. Nevertheless, today it is flabbergasting. And there are two categories. Some people are mentally sick, which means they are phantasmagoric crazies, and they think that they are Jesus or that they come from Shambhala and all they need is electric shocks and cold baths. And there is a number of people who simply realize that they can get to their first Rolls Royce much faster because if you are going to get a Rolls Royce by working in Shell Oil or in Walmart, it's going to take way, way longer for you to get. But in spirituality if you've got the cheek to come up with 
puffed up lies and statements, you can easily find people who are more impressionable than the average and who will start rolling on their back in tears thinking that now you have come up with the salvational thing. And therefore, the Tibetan yogis basically say, don't blame anybody. Charlatans have been, are, and will be. If you follow one of them, it's your grievous mistake. Open your eyes. Start looking at the judgment on the other day, on Tuesday, Even the Tibetans give a judgment and they say there is a sign that you are actually evolving properly and that sign is the diminishing of obscuring passions and the diminishing of selfishness. And Jesus has given the other evaluation which I mentioned already where he says any tree shall be known by its fruits. Therefore, study the fruits, study the effects, look into the effects on your own evolution concerning obscuring passions and selfishness and evaluate carefully. If you follow a charlatan, it's not the fault of the charlatan. The charlatan can be simply a mentally disturbed person who lives in a phantasmagoric, sick imagination of their own. They need hospitalization, but the society is too tolerant and too lax and lets them walk on the street without grabbing them and committing them somewhere. Therefore, you have to take responsibility for this. When I asked one of my early, my second spiritual teacher, when I was young and I said, how would you evaluate this, what would you do about this? Because in those days, in communist Romania, and still there were charlatans. There were people who were, who could be easily catalogued as spiritual charlatans. Even in communism, in ultra-hard communism, where any form of spirituality was persecuted a priori, and still there were people who would make a living from spiritual charlatanism. Incredible. Even like, it's like weeds, you know, they grow everywhere, even in the most adverse conditions, you would find these human weeds, which are the spiritual charlatans. And I asked, how would you evaluate? What is to be done about that? And that teacher had a cynical remark to it. He said, you know what? Good disciples deserve good teachers. Bad disciples, people with bad karma, they deserve bad teachers who will delude them, torture them, confuse them, give them lots of pain, and eventually give them shit, give them nothing. And the result will be that you've done 35 years of spirituality, and in the end you've got nothing, and you wasted a perfectly good lifetime thinking that you are doing something. Therefore... Remember, this is a very acute, it's not a coincidence, the list of grievous mistakes starts with this one. Open your eyes, it's happening, I see it, I see it around, it's not over, on the contrary. In Kali Yuga, 
in the end times of Kali Yuga, it's more than ever. The second of the grievous mistakes. For a devotee to apply himself to vain worldly sciences, rather than to seeking the chosen secret teachings of the great sages, is a grievous mistake. Go for the exoteric instead of the esoteric. This is, in the view of the Tibetan yogis, a grievous mistake. Like, remember that there is always science which is esoteric. I don't want to talk against the exoteric science. I hope you are used to these two words. Exoteros and esoteros are Greek expressions which mean outside of the circle and inside of the circle. Esoteros is <coughs> inner circle and exoteros is outer circle. Exoteric spirituality is, for example, religion for the masses, like a world religion, which contains very little information for very many people, like the world religions. And esoteric means very strong information for a limited number of people. And that would apply to yoga, tantra, and a few other esoteric disciplines, the esoteric Taoistic teachings and others. Yoga and Tantra are not the only ones, but they are some of the most specific. In the esoteric teachings, the great sages, they gave through intuition, through clairvoyance, through grace, through inspiration, some great esoteric truths such as one of the most primary, is presented by Buddha when he presents the law of karma. No, yes, Tuesday when I did a commentary, <coughs> I said the practice, the most simple practice for people of lesser spiritual intellect is to the faith, to have faith and to live according to the law of cause and effect, to the law of karma. That's like the kindergarten of spirituality. But even that, is not applied by 90%, more than 90% of the people who live in Buddhism, Hinduism, or others, they say, they speak about karma, but they don't really believe in it, because otherwise people would not do the abominations which they do. So, it's a false belief, it's not really a belief, it's a pro forma belief, which is denied by the facts. So, the sages gave the law of karma and some people don't believe in it. And some people say, well, karma, I don't know if it exists, but let us study the law of chemical balances, acid and alkaline in chemical mixtures. This is to replace an esoteric truth, which is a synthesis which is much deeper, which is the result of introspection, contemplation, clairvoyance, and it is not accessible to the normal intelligence. It represents a gift of somebody who went beyond and brought that truth and said, although you can't see it, trust me, 
this is the way things are, essentially, out there, up there, and instead of resorting to the esoteric truths, people are resorting to exoteric truths. Let's have an example of that in yoga. Instead of people believing in energy and chakras, people believe in blood and nerves. Yoga has become an anatomical science. Although the yogis 400 years ago, they didn't study anatomy. They didn't talk about joints and organs and fluids and so on and all the other anatomical things. They said, you do this, the energy is coming from the earth or from the cosmos, it does that and that will be the effect. The person who develops his muladhara chakra is going to have a glaring or a blazing digestive fire and is going to have an eloquent speech and you know. What has that got to do with the joints and the muscles and the tendons and the endocrine glands and all that? This is the, it's exactly that. A devotee applying himself or herself to vain worldly sciences. Everybody can do the worldly sciences. Of course, even there, some people are more intelligent, some people are less intelligent, some people have stronger memory, some people have weaker memory. Like, not everybody reaches the same scientific degrees. But, like, the fact that people can study some chemistry or some physics or some natural science or some of this or that, everybody has the capacity to do that. To get to feel the cosmic and the telluric energy, to get to feel the chakras and all that, it's already a special thing. It's already a very special thing. And that's exoteric. The human faith, the human knowledge, very easily gets attached and notices things which are gross, things which are obvious things which are not subtle. And the subtle knowledge is very difficult to grasp. And the mind loses contact with it, misses contact with it very easily. Therefore, here is the thing. Some people make a real bad bargain. And I gave you an example in yoga. I can give you 20 more examples of where this goes from the standpoint of yoga itself. Today, people do acupuncture, and they try to say that the points of acupuncture are some nerves or some electrically peculiar points on the skin. Did that make acupuncture progress? No. The strongest acupuncturers are still in China, and while Westerners take a course of three months and they become acupuncturers, in China they study nine years, and only then you start getting some of the secrets. That's why you have Chinese acupuncturers who can put five needles in somebody and perform life surgery, making that person anesthetized fully, full body anesthesia for major surgery, and none of those who believe that this is just some electric points and nerves can do that. That's the tendency of the human mind and knowledge. 
to miss the esoteric, subtle things which are subjected to the wall of silence, which are a grace, which are a breakthrough, which bring a knowledge that annihilates suffering, as Buddha said, the cause of suffering is ignorance and the way to stop suffering is therefore knowledge. That knowledge is the esoteric knowledge and then there is a lot of knowledge which is useless. One of the great commentators of spirituality, I think it was René Guénon, but I have a bit of misgiving about it. There might have been someone else who said this. In the 20th century they said, this is the century where psychology has replaced religion. People believe more in the psychologist than in the theologist. Theology is divine science revealed by Saint Basil the Great, and psychology is a worldly vain science revealed by Freud and Jung. That's the tragedy of Kali Yuga, that people believe more in Freud and Jung then they believe in Basil the Great and in Gregory the Theologian. That is where the mind goes and this is how the decadence of things happen when they are not properly supported. The Tibetans have noticed this. It's always happening and they say for a devotee to apply himself to vain worldly sciences like, you know, medical science. What about the medical science which comes from Charaka and Sushruta and the Ashtanga Hridaya and all those and which is coming with clairvoyance and with principles based on things? How many people? Today you go in India, even Ayurvedic doctors, they want to be trained in allopathy because they believe in penicillin. Charaka and Sushruta did not solve the problems of their patients with penicillin. This is the, but people will say, yeah, but penicillin works, doesn't it? That's the trap, that we are always trapped by the fact that some things are really obvious. What is obvious is gross, is coarse, it's not subtle. The subtle solutions work much more. In the science of homeopathy, Hahnemann, Samuel Hahnemann created the marvelous understanding of homeopathy and at least half of the modern homeopathic doctors, they practice a bastardized, distorted form of homeopathy which is not classical homeopathy anymore in which they practice a symptomatic homeopathy. Oh, you've got a headache, take some aconiticum. Oh, you've got a plug nose, take some arnica. Oh, you've got some pain in your testicles, take some mercurium sulfuricum or something. This is complete bullshit from the standpoint of Hahnemann. This is not what homeopathy is, because homeopathy does not treat symptoms and diseases. It's not addressing. When you see a book of homeopathy which says, for a flu, take this, for a high blood sugar, take this, you can throw it into the fire. That book is crap from a homeopathic standpoint, exactly as the yoga books that talk about gymnastics only. They are good for the pictures. Maybe you can scan the pictures and use them for something. Of course, it's against the copyright laws, and you can't even do that. No? But for the rest, what information will you get from that? 
Nothing. It's toilet paper. You could have saved the tree by not printing that book. You could have done an act of ecology by not printing that book. This is the tragedy. Yeah? To replace spiritual, subtle, insightful science, which has the genius of Ajna Chakra, which has the real vision, to replace them with all these watered-down things. I'm not saying that the modern science is all wrong or useless. I'm not saying that. We use, right? I'm getting in the light of two projectors which a hundred years ago would have been impossible. Those halogen lamps or whatever are up there. I'm not denying the modern science. I'm just putting some things in perspective, like to know when to apply one thing and when to apply the other kind of thing. So, the second was clear. Choose the secret esoteric teachings, the real ones. Three, for a yogin to make far-reaching plans as though he were going to establish a permanent residence in this world, instead of living as though each day were the last he had to live, is a grievous mistake. That is the famous principle of living in the present. The yogis simply say, if you thought tomorrow was going to be the last day of your life, how would you live today? What would you do? And we discuss that often. We mention that in the very first level lectures in the Santosha lecture and others in other situations because that is the correct philosophy. It has been outlined by the Greek sages, it has been outlined by Jesus, it has been announced by Buddha and by the great Hindu gurus. It's everywhere in this humanity and yet it is so difficult to remember it because it spoils the plans. The human being has a very big talent to live in the future. In the past or in the future, melancholic temperaments live in the past and sanguine temperaments live in the future. And if you stop a sanguine temperament from making plans about the future, you could as well shoot them because for them psychologically it's like death. It's like, you know, I need to have some plans for the future. To stop a melancholic person to look in the memories of the past, it's almost impossible. Melancholic people, that's why it's called melancholia. Melancholia is like all the time remembering things, and usually bitter, sad things, and thinking that you are drawing lessons. No, Oh, you have to learn from the lessons of the past, not by dwelling in the past. So, what I'm saying here, Tibetan yogis are very sharp about this one. They say, for a yogin to make far-reaching plans as though he were going to establish a permanent residence in this world. There is a sense of humor, as a bitter, sharp sense, like, what, are you going to be here forever? Are you foolish? Take a cold shower, wake up. The Dalai Lama echoing this in one of his discourses, he said, life is like crossing a bridge because neither the beginning of our life and what was before it 
nor the end of our life and what comes after it is not here. Nobody has his pre-life or his afterlife here. You see, people only during their life. But whatever is before or after, it's definitely not here because otherwise we'd see it. Therefore, this is a bridge between two things which we don't know. And Dalai Lama said, this Dalai Lama said, although life is like crossing a bridge, many people foolishly try to build themselves a house on this bridge. It's a bridge. You are crossing a bridge. It's an 80 year long bridge. It's a very long bridge, but there is not more to it than that. You are not going to accomplish anything permanent in this world here. Nothing permanent will remain here. Because you are on a bridge. Everything is transient. Either you make children as much as a football team, or you build the second Eiffel Tower, or you do whatever you do. It will not last and it will perish. It's on a bridge. You are investing in something which is on sand, on quicksand. Why invest then? It's elementary wisdom not to invest in something which is transient. And yet people do that all the time. Oh yeah, so what? I made efforts, but at least I have money and I bought land and I bought a house and it will remain to my children. Completely a way of thinking which sounds very reasonable in the bourgeois world, but which from a realistic spiritual standpoint, it has no meaning whatsoever. It does not reflect, people say, oh, how selfless you are. You worked all your life and then you left something to your descendants. People even praise this as being a noble, altruistic thing. <coughs> Tibetan yogis say, and they have said in others, it's a stupidity. <coughs> it's misguided effort. You are distracting yourself by thinking you are doing something useful, useful and selfless. When if you did what Buddha did, that would be truly selfless. That is the real selflessness and compassion. Not to help uh, your children or your grandchildren to have a piece of land and a house. You are not helping anything with it. It's an illusion. And of course... You know, but you want to have that illusion because actually you know I cannot sit six years in meditation like Buddha, so I'm going to pretend I'm going to do the second best thing because I actually am incapable of the first best thing. That is the sad truth about it. So, let's read it again. For a yogin to make far-reaching plans as though he were going to establish a permanent residence in this world, instead of living as though each day were the last he had to live, is a grievous mistake. Grievous mistake. Think twice. If you are to die, not tomorrow, but in a week, let's be lenient. What would you do? What are you going to do? How would you live your life? That is the real... What is the most important? That you die having a piece of land 
or you die having reached the state of samadhi and you can reach it in the moment of your death and exit through the Brahmarandra and go to the divine worlds or to full enlightenment. Which is the most relevant? Which is the most important? <clears throat> That's why it is put in the category of grievous mistakes. What do you invest in? Where is your life going? For uh, the fourth of the so-called grievous mistakes, for a devotee to preach the doctrine to the multitude before having realized it to be true, instead of meditating upon it and testing its truth in solitude, is a grievous mistake. Only today I had a couple of people in my office hours in the interviews who said, Swami, I feel like being alone most of the time. I love being in my bungalow, meditating, reading, doing my thing. And I'm blaming myself because I'm not socializing more and going out there a little bit more. And I told them, it's a blessing to be able to be alone in your room. The fathers of the desert tried to stay 30 years locked in a room and it was bloody difficult to stay in a room isolated and to fight with a boredom which the mental monkey is creating, trying to push you out there to socialize like an ant with all the ant hill. All the time, all the time, zap antennas with everybody else. Bzz, bzz, bzz. Are you still here? Are we together in the ant hill? Why not stay there and meditate like Milarepa? For a devotee to preach the doctrine to the multitude before having realized it to be true. You are going to say, what about the many of the yoga teachers of Agama, which can be relatively beginners in their spiritual practice, and yet they are sitting there where you sit, and they are doing lectures and talk talking about spiritual truths and all that, and maybe they haven't realized the truth of those things. Why? How is the situation there? All the teachers in Agama, they teach by a sort of proxy. They have an empowerment to teach. And none of the teachers of Agama, if they are still Agama teachers and doing it correctly, none of them is going to tell you, I teach my truth. I teach in my name. None of them. Exception made of Maha, whom a few days ago I said she can now teach whatever her truth is. Everybody who chooses to teach into Agama is actually teaching in my name. I have sent them out there to teach because I cannot yet multiply my body in too many copies and I cannot be in too many places and therefore I need proxies. I need people who will do that work. And that is why they teach by empowerment, so they don't teach. It's a karma yoga for them to do the teaching. And thus, the principle remains. It is, I have meditated on it. When I ask people to teach, this has been taken into account. So, to preach the doctrine 
before having realized it to be true, instead of meditating upon it and testing its truth, like does the law of karma really work? No, that's the most elementary thing, to have faith in the law of karma. Does it really work? Has everybody tested it? Does everybody believe in it 100%, stand by it? For many people, they don't know. They say, well, yeah, kind of, it makes sense. I like to believe it's true. Yeah, for me, it's kind of 90%. It's probably there. Probably 10 years from now, I will still believe in it and uphold it and so on. But what about testing the truth of it and all that? And it even says, in solitude, the Tibetans were great lovers of solitude. Because in the Tibetan mountains, you could go 50, 100 kilometers away from anybody. And there, indeed, you will be alone. There were people who lived Milarepa in 30 years, probably didn't meet more than five people in front of his eyes physically. And those five, at the distance of 10 years between them, and accidentally, and then for a brief period of time, and he turned his back and went away. Therefore, there is a value, definitely, in having your own personal experience, and your own personal experience is not obtained by zapping antlers with each other all day long. It is obtained by sitting and practicing, by doing the practice. Have at least a few hours every day where you can be alone with yourself. Even if you just sit and watch the sunset all alone, that time alone has a value. It is very, very sad when a human being does not manage to be alone. I remember having read a proverb, I forgot who wrote it, but it was beautiful because it said, he that gets bored alone means that he has nothing to tell to himself. Like people that have a rich psyche, they can be very entertained by themselves. They can be very happy with themselves. The person who gets bored alone, it means it's a person that is very poor psychologically, very dry. It means you are boring to everybody else as well if you get bored when alone. You, sh you should be the most entertaining presence to yourself. Where is the richness of your psyche, the creativity, the imagination, the memories, the general education and culture, the, you know, there are so many things to be processed that you have accumulated during this life that for many people they feel that a lifetime is not enough. And other people say, I get bored. It is a superficiality and a dryness in this. Number five. For the yogin to be like a miser and hoard up riches instead of dedicating them to religion and charity is a grievous mistake. Yogins who are miserly, who are hoarding, 
It's the same thing. Do you think you are going to live here forever? Why are you hoarding? For which, what if you die tomorrow? Therefore, this is a typical yogic perspective. For a yogin to be like a miser and hoard up riches instead of dedicating them to religion and charity. Look at what Swami Shivananda did in India. Even at the time when Swami Shivananda passed away, that ashram, the Divine Life Society, must have been worth millions in the currency of the time. Like Swami Shivananda really performed a miracle, being a man that had nothing, being a sadhu, being a sannyasi without any possessions, he was given, he entrusted so much money, donations, income from publishing books and whatever other things were there, that he managed to manipulate, to channel a lot of wealth and a lot of material things. He built hospitals, he built charities, he built university, printing press, kitchen for the babas, ashram, colony for the lepers, Incredible amount of karma yoga. So it says, instead of dedicating them to religion and charity, it's like it is okay to have things, but not for hoarding them, not for accumulating them foolishly. To have them because they will serve a spiritual purpose. For that, it is okay. There is nothing wrong that a yogi has material affluence. The question is, what will he do with it? This is, or she, what will they do with it? Therefore, this is the number five of the grievous mistakes. Six, for a devotee to give way in body, speech and mind, to the shamelessness of debauchery, instead of observing carefully the vows of purity and chastity, is a grievous mistake. This is coming from an environment where people were predominantly celibate. There were people that were performing tantric technology, but they were not showing off about the tantric technology. It was like a very private thing, very, very seldom in the whole history of India and Tibet, where a large number of yogis and yoginis in all those centuries did practice some tantric science, how often did they really show it? In the whole of India, you go and there is only one, there are two actually, but there is only one explicit temple which contains explicit erotic sexual tantric imagery. And that's the legendary temple of Kajuraho in the center of India. And then on the sun temple in Konarak in Orissa, there is a little fresco somewhere, a side, a lateral fresco, which also contains some sexual tantric motives, because probably part of the yogis who lived there, they were involved into tantric practices. But for the rest, so many other tantrics are reported throughout the Indian and Tibetan history. Where did they show off? They didn't. 
like this was a private thing. The general society was prudish about the sexual things. 90% of the spiritual practitioners were practicing celibacy forms of spirituality. And then this rule appeared to them. For example, when I was in Tibet and I spoke with some of the teachers there and got to do some exchange of teachings and information, I was surprised to find a simple thing. The people who lived in monasteries, like the lamas, they were not yogis. And the yogis were not living in the monastery. Because I went to several monasteries, and I said, don't you also have some yogis around here? I want to talk to those yogis, because I also do yoga, and also Tibetan yoga, and I want to... And then they showed me, you see those houses up there on the mountain? That's where the yogis are living. Like they were never inside the monastery. And then I asked a few of them, why don't you guys live, like, do you have any theological rift? Do you have any uh, conflict with these people? Like, what's happening? Is there some underground thing which outsiders don't see? And they simply said, no, but we, the yogis, we practice some, some of us, we are practicing some tantric sexual practices. And we cannot do that in the monastery, because in the monastery, those that become monks, they have to take a vow of celibacy. And if you take a vow of celibacy, then you cannot at the same time do tantric practices. So the yogis don't join the monasteries. They live around the monastery, so they can come for some pujas, for some celebrations, they can be part of some rituals, they can participate partly to the life of the monastery, but they are technically speaking not residents of the monastery because they did not take the vows of celibacy. And that is a freely accepted path. Like, they don't regret it. Oh, like, we are so inferior, we can't keep it in our pants, and because we are fornicating out of weakness, we could not join the monastery. It's not at all like this. They simply say, we have chosen a different practice. We are also Buddhist, like our brothers from the monastery, but our brothers from the monastery practice Lamaistic celibate ways, and we are practicing Kargyutpa, the six yogas of Naropa, and other things, and those contain sometimes Kundalini yoga, sexual yoga, other such practices, and therefore it would be incorrect for us to try to sneak and do that in the monastery. We are doing it outside of the monastery. That is why in the Tibetan environment this statement is more precise, because it addresses to those taking the vows of chastity, the vows of celibacy. That's why I never advise people to lightly take vows and then break them. To take a vow and then break it, it's much worse than if you never took a vow. It's exactly like with tapas. If you take a tapas and then you break the tapas, it's much worse than if you'd never took a tapas. Therefore, it is recommended to think ten times and act once, not to be hasty with these things. No, it is a stupid thing to, for me 
to take the vows of becoming a Swami, and then 20 years later saying, actually, I want to be a bee producer, a honey producer. Being a Swami doesn't really kick ass, and I want to do... It's a stupid thing. I should have thought before doing it. No, it's not. It, you shouldn't play with these things. A vow is a vow is a vow. Respect it. If you don't respect your own word and in your own vows, then who will? Nobody, nothing will respect your things if you, first of all, don't respect them. It's the same here. Many of the Tibetans living in monasteries, they were becoming monks, ordained as monks, and as Buddhist monks, they had a vow of celibacy. They were not practicing Brahmacharya in the Tantric way. They were practicing Brahmacharya in the Vedantic way, in the celibate way. And therefore, they, the Tibetan gurus consider once you took that step, it is a grievous mistake to turn around and break it. You don't do. I'm celibate. I'm taking a vow. I go into a Christian monastery like a nun for 10 years. Then I actually change my mind. It's like, there's no seriousness into that. That's not serious. That's not real commitment. No, you cannot say, I'm going to have a child and I'm raising that child. And by the time that child has become 10, in, 10 years old, I think he is a stupid, ungrateful brat. And I got so bored of being a parent, so fuck it, I'm just dumping it somewhere and I'm going to live my life. That's a total lack of responsibility. You do it or you don't do it. It's much better not to do it than to be carried by your maternal or paternal instincts like an animal to just produce offspring out of a momentary instinctual tendency and then for the next 12 years to regret it every day of your life. It shouldn't work that way. It should be a deliberate, conscious decision and effort. Seven, for a yogin to spend his life between worldly hopes and fears instead of gaining understanding of the reality, with a capital R, is a grievous mistake. You see so many yogis at different stages of their lives being stressed out because of lots of issues, hopes and fears. Tibetan yogis are very radical in this way. They say, stop fretting, stop worrying about worldly things. No, you make a, you start a yoga school or a yoga center and you start worrying, will I have money enough to pay the house rent? It's, then you shouldn't have started it. You should have focus, you should focus on the understanding of the supreme reality. This is your task. The other things work or not work. Do your best, but do not worry unnecessarily. Like Krishna tells to Arjuna. He says, Arjuna, equal in victory or defeat, stand up and do the dharmic action. Do the action which is right. 
Like it's not yours to decide if it's going to succeed or fail. That depends on what the cosmic consciousness wants. Maybe you are coming out with an amazing yoga school revealing secrets of physical immortality and I don't know what esoteric things. And then it disappears. It doesn't go. Because the cosmic consciousness says, Dear, you are a genius. You have discovered something which in Kali Yuga nobody has seen for at least a thousand years. And uh, good for you, but it's not going to survive because the, your fellow men don't deserve it. This is something which will reappear in Satya Yuga and you are my guest to be reincarnated at that time and to relive this adventure in totally different conditions. Right now, it's like you are trying to grow up daisies in the middle of the winter. It won't work. Congratulations, because you discovered esoteric insight, but your initiative is meant to fail because it is simply decided from above that the world can't have this until a thousand years later. A thousand years later, it will be there. That's why a yogi has to understand this surrender. Like I do have a lot of wonderful projects. What if I die tomorrow? That's it. I did as much as the cosmic consciousness allowed me to do. I do what I do, and the rest is not mine. That is why this principle is also correct for a yogi to spend his life between worldly hopes and fears. What are the worldly hopes and fears? We have a name for it. Some people call it drama. That some people love drama. But that applies more to relationships and this. There is another name for it. Soap operas. Or by their Spanish name, people call them telenovelas. You know? Most people love to live their life in a telenovela, into a soap opera. It's just an incredible array of ambitions and hopes and ego and worries and enmity and revenge and shit of all kinds which actually the yogis have strived to run away from. When people like Ramakrishna and Milarepa went to do their spiritual practice, that's exactly what produced their abhorrence. They abhorred the soap opera of the world. They con considered the soap opera of this world that some people are ready to stab each other in the back for a piece of land, for a house, for a bride, for a groom, for a marriage, for their fame, for the... Some people have said, I will never, do I prefer to go in the jungle and live alone for the next 60 years of my life. You know, it's like people can be so tiresome. People can be so coarse, so gross in some of these things. It's like many people simply have this feeling like life, when you look around, how your family, friends, schoolmates and other how they live their lives. They care that their child was dressed better than another child at the final prom or something. It's like, who the fuck gives a damn about that? You know, it's like, 
who cares about, you know, like, people care about some things which are complete, for other people, for the yogis, are a complete nonsense. Like you wouldn't bother, you wouldn't budge a finger for all those things. This is the mentality of the soap operas. This is the environment. Of, there are people who constantly watch soap operas and they never get tired by that endless array of ambition, intrigue, gossip and all that. And there are people who if they watch half of a soap opera, they will, of an episode, they will never watch one in the rest of their lives. They feel nausea at the very hearing of the word soap opera. It's like, my gosh, soap operas is like it's a vaccine. You get 30 minutes of soap opera, you never get that for the rest of your life. You know, it's like, why? Because the whole life is a soap opera. Everybody lives in a telenovela. And you know, can't we stay away from these worldly hopes and fears? Some people consider it superhuman. It's like you are asking too much. It's not really too much. When you live in the environment of spirituality, some of the samskaras, some of these residual things in the mind, they are month after month, year after year, they are wearing out thinner and thinner. And after a while you discover that now it's been three years since you last thought about this or that. And even your friends, relatives, other people, they tell you, you are very unrealistic. You are very idealistic. You don't realize how the world really is. And all sorts of replies like this, by which people actually try to justify why they live in a telenovela. Oh, but the telenovela is very necessary. Because this is how people are. Then I for one say, let's buy an island in the Pacific or the Mediterranean and let's make a butt-naked tantric republic where no soap opera is allowed. Anybody comes with soap opera, they are going to be exiled for life. There is no return, you know. A world where soap opera is unnatural, not a world where soap opera is the norm. Because soap opera, for some of us, soap opera is sick. It's boring. It's really, really disgusting in all... It's tiresome to spend your time spinning all the time all sorts of thoughts and ambitions and gossiping and backstabbing. And it's like, you will not get Ma Ananda Mai or Saint Teresa of Avila or Milarepa or Ramakrishna to ever do that. They are so not interested into it. I know the environment even of an Indian guru where he got so fed up with people coming to talk about someone else's problems when they had interviews with this guru that he even made a rule. He said, when you come and have an interview with me, you can talk only about yourself. Nobody else will be mentioned in that dialogue. You talk only about yourself. I am there for you. 
which was, a, of course, it's administratively not always feasible, like there would be absurd situations where this rule would be absurd and hilarious. But he wanted to make this point. He simply said, so many people come to me as a spiritual teacher, and all they want to do is to gossip. They want to bring me in their soap opera. Like, I'm not interested in that soap opera. Take it somewhere else. For a yogin to spend his life between worldly hopes and fears, constantly torn like this, and instead of focusing, gaining understanding of the reality, who are we? Why are we here? What is the nature of reality? What is this world in which we live? This is really important. That is a grievous mistake. Eight, which is a whole principle, a book can be written on this one. For a devotee to try to reform others instead of reforming himself is a grievous mistake. That is what Gurdjieff said when he said the inferior man is always the man of tea culpa. It's your fault. While the superior man, it's always the man of mea culpa. It's my fault. Every Nothing happens because it's someone else's fault. It's your fault. Always. You can always say, it's my fault. You can find the root of it in you. And that is why this is what people always try to do. Reforming others. Other, it's not good because he or she should do that. You hear this all the time. Nobody says, I should be more compassionate. I should be more discriminative. I should be more detached. I should be more intelligent. Nobody says that. Everybody says, they should be more kind. What if they are not going to be more kind? Because people don't change as you want them to change. Can you bet that they will change? People say, if people would be more kind, I would also practice more yoga. It means you are never going to practice any yoga. Because people are not going to become more kind. Ramakrishna said, the only person on whom you have full authority in this life is you. I cannot make, make any of you to do headstand. I can use psychological tricks. I can tell you, if you don't do headstand, your ass will grow too big. If you don't do headstand, I can scare you. I can use motherly policies. How you scare small children and say, if you don't take the bitter medicine, I'm not going to give you chocolate tonight. And then the child takes the medicine because he's looking forward to the chocolate. You, you trick children in taking bitter medicine and so on. Even gurus do this with their pupils. When they see they don't want to do something which is obviously good, some gurus are getting a bit naughty and they are using some tricks to get you to do it because 20 years later you are going to, you know, you are going to worship me for what I did to you 20 years ago. Although it was not very kosher. It was not very elegant, but I did it because I knew it was the right thing for you. 
Some don't take this responsibility. This opens a very big door to a very another subject completely. But I cannot get you really to do something. I can do it. I can make myself do it. You cannot make other people, you cannot force other people to be more compassionate. But you can make yourself more compassionate. You can never bet that the world will become less violent. But you can practice non-violence like Mahatma Gandhi said. Be the change that you want to see in the world. You want to see non-violence? Be non-violent scrupulously. If not, do not expect that the world is going to go to non-violence. It starts with you, always. That is why the Tibetans have put it very clearly. For a devotee to try to reform others, instead of reforming himself, it's a grievous mistake. Stop worrying about others. Oh, but uh, he is not uh, spiritual enough. Is that your problem? But he is not detached enough. Is that your problem? This is why this is again part of the soap opera type of mentality. Why do you bother about what others do or don't do when you do not have absolute power over them to make them do things your way? Therefore, it doesn't mean you shouldn't care. You can care, but you cannot try to reform them instead of reforming yourself. You will see always that reforming yourself is so much more difficult than reforming others. Nine, for a yogin to strive after worldly powers, instead of cultivating his own innate spiritual powers, is a grievous mistake. That, again, can be interpreted on multiple levels. For a yogin to strive after worldly power, that can mean, for example, some administrative power. Like a yogi who wants to be the abbot of a monastery and thus to be in charge. Or for a Christian monk who wants to become a cardinal or a bishop or a pope or something. And therefore, or for somebody who thinks that money means power, and therefore for them to have power, it actually means to have money, because that will give you power to strive after worldly powers instead of cultivating his own innate spiritual powers. That is the opposition between exoteric and esoteric. Basically here the message would say the inner power or powers are much better than the outer powers. If you obtain clairvoyance or some other cities, it's much more than if you obtain some external things which come and go because the internal things stay. You can keep them. The second interpretation is also comparing the worldly powers, like I can move objects with my fingers, that's called telekinesis, instead of the inner things, like I can see my soul, I can perceive 
my soul? What's more important, that I can move objects with my hand or that I can feel my own supreme self? Or at least my jivatman, my lower self, my soul, my intermediary soul link. Therefore, it is to be read on several levels, always by comparing what is more outside with what is more inside. And in this way, it doesn't say that actually for a yogin to strive after worldly powers is a grievous mistake. No. It says for a yogin to strive after worldly powers instead of cultivating his own innate spiritual powers. Instead, if you can get both, that's good for you. You live a sort of a tantric life. You have the inside and the outside as well. Good for you. But if you have to make a choice, there is a priority. First the horses, then the cart. The priority is clear. You should always give prevalence to the spiritual, internal, superior, and then the other things will come. Jesus says it in a similar way. He says, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and all the rest shall be given to you afterwards. Jesus doesn't say it's wrong to have a Rolls Royce. But Jesus says if you got a Rolls Royce before you reach Nirvana, you are stupid. You should have strived more for Nirvana and then get a hundred Rolls Royce like Rajneesh. Osho Rajneesh being a joker, a provocative type of guru, he was longing to have 365 Rolls Royces one for each day of the year, to drive a different one every day of the year. Funny thing is that he was living at 200 meters from the yoga hall where he was lecturing, and that was all his course every day, 200 meters in another Rolls Royce every day. So it was obviously not for utilitarian purposes. It was a provocation of this kind, but he simply said, I've got nirvana, I can afford to wear a Rolex and to drive a Rolls Royce. When you have the Rolex and the Rolls Royce and you haven't reached Nirvana, then you are butt naked. Then you, you are missing something very important. You got things in the wrong sequence. So strive to get the right sequence. For a yogin to strive after worldly powers instead of cult, not with. If you have them together, that's fine, smart. And finally, the tenth of them to conclude tonight's cycle, for a devotee to be idle and indifferent instead of persevering when all the circumstances favorable for spiritual advancement are present is a grievous mistake because the circumstances are not favorable all the time for everybody. Don't forget that all those of you who are still under the influence of your karma, which pretty much means everybody, then you are having good days and bad days. You are having astrological transits, periods, moments when the bad karma is catching up with you and you have to deal with it. 
And that is why there is a famous, there are famous proverbs which say, a trouble never comes alone. Or another proverb which says, in a poor, in the house, in the household of a poor peasant or farmer, even the oxen which are pulling the cart, even the cows are lazy. Like the cows of a rich man are working more productively than the cows of a poor man. Like the poor man even has the karma that his cows are more skinny and more lazy to fulfill his destiny of poverty and deprivation. It's like all the synchronicities of nature pile up to conspire to maintain that person in their condition of poverty, weakness, illness, ignorance, or whatever that condition is. That is why when the circumstances are right, you have to hammer like crazy. There is the other proverb which says, hammer the iron while it's hot. You cannot bet. Many of you take spirituality and yoga for granted. Ah, if we don't do it now, we'll do it some other time. You would be surprised because I have seen situations with spiritual schools appearing and disappearing. Spiritual teachers coming and going. And then people who tried to catch that, there were people who said, oh, I wish I would study yoga with Direndra Brahmachari. And one day Direndra Brahmachari slammed his airplane into a hill, and now you cannot study yoga with Direndra Brahmachari. So you, sh you should have studied when Direndra Brahmachari was alive. You should have hammered the iron while it was hot. This is exactly what this says. Seize the day. Catch the circumstances. Don't take it for granted. Especially in Kali Yuga, spirituality is like a flower. It blooms, it lasts for a while, it withers and it goes. You want to study with Ramana Maharishi or with a direct disciple of Ramana Maharishi? Alas, it's not possible. There isn't any more. Therefore, here they say for a devotee to be idle and indifferent instead of persevering when all the circumstances favorable for the spiritual advancement are present. Is a grievous mistake. Not all the circumstances are present. Tibetan gurus, they use different expressions. They say, to acquire a healthy, well-endowed, free human body. Because not everybody is equally endowed. Imagine that you wanted to do yoga of the highest degree and you are plagued with poliomyelitis as a child. And to the degree where now you are in a wheelchair and your legs are thick as this. Because you cannot have muscles and fiber because of that terrible disease. Then you want to study with Dhiranda Brahmachari or you want to do Kundalini Yoga. It's bye-bye for this life. It doesn't really work. Therefore, not everybody has the good circumstances. To have a well-endowed, free human body, 
In the old days, there were people who wanted to do spirituality and they were somebody else's slaves. Like, for example, when Thomas joined Jesus, Thomas was the property of another man. He was a serf. And Jesus specifically asked him. He was the servant of Ayairus, Yairus, one of the leaders of the synagogue, whose daughter Jesus raised from the dead. That little girl that was thought to be dead. And Jesus raised her. And then afterwards, because now Yairus was completely in debt to him, or at least that's what he thought, then Jesus said, because Thomas came to him, and Jesus could see that this man had the spiritual thing in him. And then Jesus tells to Yairus, do you give him to me? No, like, this is a slave. Release him and let him be my disciple. Because otherwise, if this wouldn't have been done, Thomas might have wanted to follow Jesus or to do yoga, but his master would have sent him back to the kitchen. You have a ton of dishes to do today. No yoga. No, stop dreaming about this. You are my slave. Go and do menial jobs all day long. And many people were in that circumstance in those days. That's why the Tibetans say to have a well-endowed body, like to be healthy enough and with a good brain, not damaged goods, to be free. And then when you've got such a life, it would be such a waste to waste it by doing stupid things. Like it's so difficult to get a good life, a good body, and then not to use it to live in a soap opera, to live in the telenovela, to waste it. That is exactly what is said here. It is a very discreet. To be idle and indifferent instead of persevering. You should be persevering. And instead of this, people become idle and indifferent. I tell to many people, I've been, we have been in this country, in this island, now for 10 years. This month we have 10 years since we are in Kopangan. It's a celebration month. <coughs> and in these 10 years, I told so much to people, because I ask people, how much yoga you do? They do nothing. No? It's like at least people who come to the first level intensive, we whip their asses. They come two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, they have an evening lecture, they spend five, six hours in the yoga hall like this. Willy-nilly, we get their asses to work. Once you've got in the second level, third level, and on, suddenly it's open season for idleness and laziness. And I'm asking people, what the heck are you doing in Kopangan that you don't have time to do yoga? What is so exciting around on this island? Like how many hours can you spend on the beach and snorkeling that you don't have the time to do yoga? What is so entertaining on this island because I know many people who consider it dead boring. We had people who after two months, we had a woman who came with her husband to do the TTC and she had to leave after two months of TTC because her husband who was a golfer, an avid, an avid golfer, he simply said, I'm freaking out on this island. It's the most boring place in the world. There are no cinemas, no clubs, no this, no that. And it's like, what do you want me to do? There's not even a decent golf ground on this island. And it's like, he was, believe it or not, he was taking the boat to Koh Samui to play golf. So bored. He was getting that every morning he was going to Koh Samui with a boat because there he found a golf ground to play golf, you know. 
And how much golf can you play before you also get bored of golf? Because it's not the most entertaining sport the humanity <laughs> has seen, really. You know? So it's ultimately... That's why I say, what do you do in Copangan? How much telenovela can there be in Copangan that you don't find two poor hours of doing meditation and yoga? Two hours out of 24. Why are you here if you don't do those two hours? I, I, rem I know one yoga teacher who even built an ashram and he got so desperate that people were not were doing anything but he, except yoga. And he instituted, this guy was an authoritarian jerk, and he instituted draconian loose. Everybody between 7 p.m. and 9 p.m. does yoga with their door open, like in the prison. And there is an inspector which passes along the hallways and verifies that we are doing your yoga. Between 7 to 9 p.m. there is yoga time. If you get to do yoga with a whip, like in the gallows, you know, it's like you can as well resign from the job, you know, it's like, then go and do something else, you know, walk on a tightrope between the twin towers or something, you know, do something entertainment, entertaining and exciting, you know, it's like, what? So, to be persevering, not idle and indifferent. This idle and indifference is laziness. It's one of the poisons of the mind. It's tamas guna. It's the tamasic spirit which makes people obscure and dull and inert. When all the circumstances favorable for spiritual advancement are present, look at your lives. Can you say that now, for you, all the circumstances favorable for spiritual advancement are present. Some of you might say, I'm having a six-month-old baby. I have some very important social responsibilities, which I cannot discard unless I will become irresponsible. And therefore, no, I, not all the circumstances are there. In 18 years from now, when my child will come of age and I can kick it in the ass and send it in the world to live its life, then I will have my freedom. Right now, I have everything. I'm healthy. I'm good in my mind. I have aspiration. I have found a good teacher that can teach me a very excellent method. But I haven't got my freedom. Somebody can say other things, <clears throat> such as, right now, I suffer from a terrible disease. Due to my disease, it is not really possible for me to focus right now full on on the spiritual evolution, because I have got a cancer, and if I keep meditating, I'm going to die. Because for healing my cancer, I need more than just Laya Yoga. I need some other thing. I need healing, the healing part of yoga, and diet, and other things. So I don't have time to focus on the expansion of my spirit. I have to focus on the healing of my body, or else I die before I reach nirvana. And then I'm going to kind of shoot myself in the foot. I'm sabotaging myself, because I can't make it. 
<clears throat> Therefore, do not take it lightly. This question is not always answered yes. Like when you ask, are all the conditions propitious, favorable for spiritual advancement, are they present? Some of you will say, yes, actually I'm free like a bird of the heavens and I have everything and right now I could. But maybe I don't have the aspiration or the interest for it, which is also an honest thing to say. And to say it's not really down my alley. Right now I don't have the motivation, but I have the motivation to at least study this or to at least achieve this or to at least verify this part of it. That's good enough. But once you came to the point of saying all the circumstances favorable for the spiritual advancement are present, then the Tibetan yogis say hammer the iron while it's hot. Don't take it for granted that God has any duty to you to give you always favorable circumstances. You are taking for granted something which is not so. Therefore, you have to catch, seize the opportunity. In the moment when you seize the circumstances, dash, floor it, go full on. Because maybe you reach before that window of opportunity is over and then nothing else will matter anymore. But if you wait indifferently, that window will close, maybe due to some astrological transit or something. Then you are going to say 20 years later, wish I did something 20 years ago when I was in Kopangan. And then it will be too late. Therefore, seize the day in spirituality. It is a grievous mistake to postpone taking it for granted that you are going to meet the same circumstances again. Very seldom will you meet the same circumstances again. This was the ten and last of the injunctions grouped under the form of the ten grievous mistakes. Let us now remain a minute or two in gentle interiorization to let these truths settle down. And that will do. With this we will finish for tonight. Namaste to all of you and thank you for joining. I'll see you in the next satsangs. Soon we'll finish this Tibetan text and move to other commentaries. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.